Years ago, a couple of psychiatrists named Clifford Notarius and Howard Markman, they studied what made some marriages work and other marriages fall apart. And the book they published 25, 30 years ago, maybe, I don't know, it's called We Can Work It Out. They outlined the following predictor of whether or not a marriage would last. Their method, they studied a, this large group of newlyweds and through their first 10 years of marriage and after that they published this and they found something in their research they could point to that they say can predict. Something from the first year of marriage that can predict with a 93% accuracy which marriages last and which ones end in divorce. And here's what they said. Among couples that ultimately divorced in that first year of marriage, there were 10 uh, derogatory comments, 10 put-downs out of every 100 conversations. In the marriages of that large group they studied, the ones that stayed together, on average, there were only five derogatory comments or put-downs. Five derogatory comments or put-downs more made the difference. Isn't that interesting? Now, they did say those who only had five of those in their marriage, that number stayed the same in the marriages that lasted. The ones in that first year who had 10 on average derogatory comments, that number grew and grew and grew. Now, these statistics make me wonder, like, were the bad comments the cause or were they a symptom of the problems? I don't know. What I do know is that our words matter. What we, what we say makes a difference. What we use our mouths to do makes a huge difference in our life and those around us. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. We are commanded over and over and over to use our words to encourage, to build up, to strengthen. And we are commanded over and over and over not to use our words to tear down, to criticize, to harm. Today's passage is a, is a great reminder of, of that biblical theme that runs throughout both Testaments. And it fits with what James has been talking to us about. In chapter 1, James told us to be slow to speak, slow to get angry. He'll be unpacking that a little more today. In the the previous chapter, in chapter 2, James told us that our works matter as Christians. 
Well, our words, as one commenter put it, our words are works. And they, they will and they do matter. Today's passage expands on those ideas today as James is going to teach us this morning in the first 12 verses of James chapter 3 just how much our words matter. Let's read our passage. It goes a little something like this if I can turn my clicker on. James chapter 3 begins this way, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect person, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the, mouth, into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And look at the ships also. Though they are so great, they are driven by strong winds. They're still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life. And the tongue is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send forth uh, out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. We start today in verse 1, where James warns his original audience that not many of them should become teachers because of a stricter judgment that comes to those who proclaim stuff. It's very likely that James is addressing something that was a, a particular problem in his original audience, and it would make sense that this would be specific to them somewhat. James is writing uh, to Jewish Christians only because he's writing so early. That's the only kind of Christians there were. And they are, they are Jewish men and women who have just come out of first century Jewish society. And in that society, teachers, rabbis were highly respected. Well, all of a sudden, those folks don't have rabbis and teachers. And they also didn't have Bibles. When James sat down to write this letter, exactly zero of the New Testament had been written. So when the church got together, what do you do? Well, it appears they, they took turns sharing with one another what they thought God would want said. And it was a, 
especially sort of, they were especially susceptible, I assume, for people wanting to be in that, that teacher role and get some of, that, some of that shine, some of that prestige that came in that role. And so James says, be very careful because we will all be judged by what we proclaim. Now, I'm primarily a teacher. I mean, that's what I do in this job. I've done it in one capacity or another since the old such times of the 1900s. So I take, I take this verse very seriously for what it says to me. I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to belittle or diminish what this says to me. And I, I preached this message to myself as I studied it. But I'm not teaching this to me. And I want you to know that this verse applies to you even if you are not like a vocational teacher. The, James, the people that James wrote to, none of them were vocational teachers. But we all have the tendency to become proclaimers. Anytime we say, here's what's what, here's what God says, we become, we, we step into the role of the teacher. In fact, I think we're way more susceptible to this now than they were then because we have Facebook. We have the way to proclaim to an audience, here's what God says. Here's what I've been feeling. Here's what I've been hearing. Here's what other people think, but let me tell you. With that in mind, I want you to read with me something very related that James' half-brother Jesus said once. He said, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. This fits very nicely with what we talked about next week, or excuse me, last week. How the word justified, if you were here, if you remember this, the word justified can, can mean different things. Okay, it doesn't just mean how God sees us as eternally righteous, but how God sees what I say, what I do. God can see what I say and what I do as right. He can see what I say and what I do as wrong. And He will remember what I say. Are our words important? I'd say so. It's almost like we have the right to remain silent. But anything we say can and will be used against us in the high court. And pay attention. It's not just my well-thought-out positions that I will be judged by. It's the careless words that just, just come out. You know, have you ever looked closely at your water heater or your air compressor? 
you'll notice somewhere on those pieces of equipment, they have this little thing called a pressure relief valve. Or if the pressure gets too great, that thing will break open and right, the, the, the pressure will... Is your mouth ever like your pressure relief valve? Where the pressure just builds and builds and all of a sudden, bang out. Careless words. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people are going to give an account for all those careless words. Jesus said that, not me. Now, the good news is that God remembers every word, is that there are some words, we have the opportunity to use our words in a way where we will be so happy then that we said them now, when we encourage when we build up, when we love with our words. It's not just James and it's not just Jesus. Paul talked about this concept also. Um, Paul's masterpiece, in my opinion, is the book of Romans, where Paul lays out the, in the clearest way what it means to be a Christian. Um, and and it's the first section of the book is about why we need to be a Christian, why anyone needs to be a Christian. The first section of the book is about you need to be rescued from this position you are in, which, means, which is you're unrighteous. And in that section where Paul says famous things like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. But he also makes this argument that everyone will be without excuse before God. That's a hard thing for us to understand. You ever, you ever think about this like, man, it's not really fair if somebody stands before God that never heard about God. They never read a Bible. They never saw a Bible. How can that person be judged according to things that they, they, they didn't even know? Doesn't seem fair. Well, Paul says this about that argument. He says, you are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge someone else. For on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the same things. A guy named Francis Schaeffer, who's a, a, an evangelical thinker in the 20th century, gave my favorite explanation of this. I've stolen it and used it ever since. Uh, he said Romans 2.1 is about the tape recorder. Here's, this is why people are without excuse before God. Even if they've never heard about Jesus, even if they've never seen a Bible, no one is going to stand before God and have a reasonable excuse for why, hey, I, like, I, hi there, uh, sir. I didn't know you were real. Surely you can't send me away from you. I never knew about you. You can't say I am unrighteous. I, I never read the rules. Well, God, in that scenario, he could say this. Well, that's okay. Far be it for me to be unjust. Here's what we'll do. I'm not going to judge you based on my standards of righteousness. I'll judge you based on yours. And God says, you see, I recorded every moral judgment you ever made in your life. Here's what we'll do. We're gonna, I'm going to press play, and you're going to hear a recording of every time you got angry 
when someone else did something you knew was wrong. Every time you were upset and told someone they hadn't ought to do such and such. And then God presses play. And they would hear me when I learned that someone lied about or to me and I got so angry. Or he would, he would hear you when, when someone stole something from you and you, you just, you, you just, you're so mad, I was so wrong. Every moral judgment. And then God says, all right, now we've got the law according to you. Now let's go back and we'll, now we'll play the tape of your life and see how you stood up to your own standards of what's right and wrong. What you proclaimed was right and wrong in your life. You know what Paul says? No one would pass that judgment either. Now the, the real news is that's not how judgment works. We're judged based on God's standards of righteous, righteousness. But Paul says, we are so lost. We are so in need of rescue. Not only can we not stand up before God's standards of righteousness, we can't even stand up to our own. And you know how we know that? Just listen to our words. Our words matter. That's what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 12. That's what James is talking about today. I think that's James's main point. It's not, go tell your pastor or your Sunday school teacher they better be careful. That's true. But his main point is, we better be really careful that what we proclaim matches who we are. Because our words matter. We had better control what we say. Agreed? Now there's only one tiny little problem with that. James makes really clear it's impossible for us to control what we say. We cannot control our tongues. I'm going to go relatively quickly through these. But in verse 2, James says, it would take a perfect person to control their mouth. And we're fresh out of perfect people. Then in verses 3 and 4, James says, you know, in fact, instead of, it's not so much us controlling our mouths, if you think about it, our mouths control us. In some ways, our, our lives, are, the course of our lives are steered by what we say. The way a horse is steered by the bit. The, the way a, a ship is steered by its rudder. If only we could control our tongues, controlling the rest of us would, would be easy. The ship is an especially helpful illustration because the pilot at the helm of the ship is responsible for where that rudder is aimed regardless of what storm is coming around it. And we are responsible for what we say regardless of what storm is happening around us. In verses 5 and 6, James writes about how even though our tongues are small, 
uh, Gene Simmons notwithstanding. Sorry, it's an 80s kid joke. Some of you will get that. The rest of you will have to ask an old person later. Even though our tongues are small, they have huge effects on our lives and those around us. If we go around the room this morning, how many people would we find in here who are still suffering the effects of something that were said to them or about them when they were young? From a parent, from a teacher, from a coach, from a sibling, from the kids at school, from someone at church. That, that old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In a lifetime of saying false things, I'm not sure any of us ever repeated anything less true than that one. Our tongues, according to verse 6, they pollute our whole body and, and they can set our whole life on fire because of the dumb, careless, mean things we say. They can, even in the mouth of a Christian, our tongues can still be a pipeline for hell itself. Now, that may sound like bad news, but don't worry, it gets worse. Because even though they're, they're that dangerous, we have no ability to control them. That's James's point in verses 7 and 8. He says, we, as human beings, we've figured out how to tame, how to domesticate all kinds of wild animals and none of us have figured out how to tame our tongues. No person can tame the tongue. It's too, it's too restless, it's too evil, it's too poisonous. And then James says, and it shouldn't be this way for the Christian. In verses 9 through 12, James is saying like it's unnatural for a Christian indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who's been made righteous enough that God can live inside this temple. It's unnatural for the Christian with the same mouth to bless and worship God one minute and curse and deride and tear down his people the next it just shouldn't be this way. His examples at the end, James is like, just look around in the natural world. You know it shouldn't be this way. You ever see a spring that one day like bubbles forth this artesian water that's great to drink and the next day this, the water from the same spring is nasty? That doesn't happen. You ever see a tree that puts on peaches one year and crab apples the next year? That doesn't happen. 
You ever, you ever go to the beach and, and watch the, the waves crash up on the shore? And if you go and, and taste one of them, it's salt water. And the next day you taste them and it's fresh water? No, of course not. That doesn't happen. So James is saying, so why is it like that with what comes out of us? Why are our tongues sometimes encouraging, truth-telling, worshiping, and other times they're just mean, biting, lying, and destructive? And that's where the passage ends. He doesn't even give us any good news. He doesn't give give us any how-tos. So what are we supposed to do about this problem we all share? James doesn't say most of us can't tame our tongues. It's none of us. He's told us nothing we say will be forgotten by God. We're going to hear it again. Yet it's impossible for us to tame it. You see the problem? (laughs) James drops us just the tiniest hint at a solution. In verse verse 8, the Greek is kind of goofy. That's why our Bibles translate verse 8 differently. It says something like, no man can tame the tongue among men. There's the redundancy that's goofy. And I like this translation because I think it catches the hint. James says, no human being can subdue the tongue. Fortunately, there's someone who's more than a human being that can be part of our solution. It's like, Nobody here can tame their tongue. But James says, but I know a guy. He's my half-brother. On our own, in our flesh, we cannot tame our tongue. We cannot subdue our tongues. It is, and he uses this word, restless. Your Bible may have a different word than restless there. It might say unruly. It might say several different things. Um, If we would turn back into chapter 1. There's this place in chapter 1 where James talks about being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Do you remember that? It's the unstable in all his ways is that same word right there. The unstable, double-minded man is this kind of person. And I know none of us would ever struggle with this. But the the double-minded man is someone who's a Christian. And sometimes on a good day, uh, that that person wants what God wants and has a desire to pursue the things of Christ. And then his flesh, his own desires start to get the best of him. And then sometimes he just wants what he wants, regardless of what God wants. And then that double-mindedness makes us unstable and we crash back and forth. We have these seasons of chasing what I want until that starts to fall apart. And then I ask God for help and I run back over here for a couple days until... Um, I start to get drawn over here and I unstable in all my ways, crash back and forth. Do you remember that sermon? Nod your head and make me feel good like you remembered some of that. 
Guess where our unstable double-mindedness shows up first? Right in the old kisser. With our words. It's an unstable evil. Full of deadly poison. So if we can't change our words, do you, do, you, do you get that James has said about 15 different ways, your words are a problem and you can't change your words. Your mouth is a problem. You can't change your mouth. Do you know why he's, you know why he's making that point? Because ultimately it's not our mouths and our words that are the problem. It's our hearts. It's our hearts. And listen, that's where the hope comes in. Because when you come to know Jesus as your Savior, when you want, when you recognize, uh, when you recognize you're a sinner, we say here, when you recognize you, you've got some things jacked up in your life. There's some things about you you don't like. You have caused damage. You have hurt others. Something's not right. When you want rescue, you come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what God promised hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up that he would do for people who come to him. He says, I will give you a new heart. And I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove that old heart of stone from your body and give you a soft, fleshy heart. I'll put my spirit within you and I will take the initiative and you'll obey my statutes and carefully observe my regulations. You'll be better. When we come to God through Jesus, we are born from above, born again, regenerated, whatever you want to call it, a few wonderful things happen. One, yes, we are forgiven of everything we will ever say, every bad thing we've ever done. We are signed, sealed, and waiting to be delivered to eternal life. Hallelujah. But that's not it. When we get a new heart, like we got a chance. Like, most of us spend our whole lives with this war going on between what's in here and what we don't want to come out here. Right? It's this constant war with our pressure relief valve where we have one of two problems. Either we, we, we just try to make what's in here not come out like it leads to hypocrisy where we pretend everything is okay when it's not. Or, or because we don't want to be a hypocrite and I'm going to be real and I'm not fake, we just let all the terrible stuff that's in here constantly come out. Listen, none of, neither of those things is good. But James says, don't just try to chew, to bite your tongue and weld shut your pressure relief valve. Let God go to work on your heart. 
And then watch what happens. Your words matter. So guard your heart because that's where your words come from. I love Proverbs 4.23. Above all things, guard your heart. So now, what's that mean? What's that look like? How do we do that? Well, first, let's start here. Let me ask you this question. How's your heart? Be honest. What's in, what's in there? Like, what's it look like? How's it doing? It's valuable. I care about it. If any of us, let me ask you this question. Anybody have any problem with their words lately? If the answer to that is yes, then you and the Lord have heart work to do. I would say first, guard your heart. What is it? You are constantly, when I say heart, I just mean the immaterial part of me. What we might call the mind, the heart, the soul, the spirit. What is it you are constant? what is it you tend to put into your mind and your heart? What are you chewing on? Garbage in, garbage out is a very real problem. Pay attention to what your heart treasures. Let that be my next question. What are the things you actually, truly treasure in this life of ours? Because let me tell you, I know when your pressure relief valve goes off. For you. You know when it is? When something you actually treasure gets degraded, gets damaged, gets stolen. Think about it. When something you really want, value, and treasure gets attacked, that's when I sort of go off. What do you, what do you treasure? Because here's, here's maybe the best kept secret of the gospel, of life with, with Christ. If you really treasure the things of God that we have through Jesus Christ, nobody can get at them. Nobody can touch them. Nobody can steal them. Nobody can take them. Nobody can hurt them. Nobody can dampen them. Not height, not depth, not powers, not things today, not things to come. Don't make me read all of Romans 8 to you. But when we treasure what we have in Christ, what we treasure doesn't ever get stolen, damaged, hurt. And don't you know your words will reflect that. What do you treasure? What is it you really want? 
Jesus says, the mouth speaks what comes out of the treasury of the heart. He also says in the same passage that we quoted earlier, make the tree good and the fruit you won't have to worry about. The fruit will be good. You know, our words, they're like the fruit. James said, you know, is there a vine that sometimes grows grapes and other times grows figs? The answer to that is no. But if it happened, if all of a sudden you went out to your grapevine and like, what's this fig doing here? Would you think, man, there's something wrong with this fig. No, you would think there's something wrong with the, with the vine. The fig is the symptom. The vine is the problem. If I'm constantly spewing out figs, I need to do some work on the vine. But I'm powerless to change that too. So which one's your problem? Do you tend to hide what's in your heart because it's not worth sharing? Or do you tend to overshare what's in your heart when it's not worth sharing? You have one of those two problems. The solution comes with the new heart. God will help you sort of download all that stuff. And I will not tell you that the stuff that's in there, the pain, the hurt, I, didn't, I will never tell you it doesn't come from real things that were really wrong. But I will beg you to stop blaming others for the condition of your heart and go to the one who heals hearts. If I'm constantly just waiting for someone else to change my condition so I will feel better, I'm going to lead a miserable life. But I'm just as sure if I will hitch my heart to the healer's wagon, it will change where I'm at. It will change now. You know, uh, all right, I'm going to do it. I hope he doesn't listen to sermons anymore because he'll kill me. Uh, do you, know, you want to know who the most encouraging, and I don't mean, it, some of you have been very, very encouraging to me. Personally, the single most encouraging person ever to me in my ministry is a guy you might have heard of. His name's Max Kaiser. Okay, and the reason Max was so encouraging, Max used to just write me letters. Um, I've got some in my office. I've got some in my drawers at home. I've just got them kind of stashed around because I'll bump into them and I get them out and I still read them. And it's amazing how God will show me some of those when I need them because words matter. But you know why it's so encouraging? That they, it's not that Max said the magic words. Max encouraged me, and Max was one of the most discouraged people I've ever known. <laughs> and I've told him that. He struggled with just being down, with not feeling encouraged himself. But he didn't let the way he felt control his words. 
And that was so encouraging to me. How's your heart? What did someone do to damage your heart? But at some point, at some point, we have to understand what's keeping me from having a new heart is not anyone else but me and the, and the healer. Would you bow your heads and let's pray for a minute. Father, um, every paragraph in the book of James seems to just smack us. And we continue to find things like we're bad at, that we're not doing well, that don't make us feel good. Today, Lord, in the book of James, you talk to us about our words. And we all have problems with our words. And we can't control them. And this morning, we learned why we can't control them. Because we can't control them. We can't. Because they come out of our hearts. The only thing we can do has come to you for heart change. So God, as we talk through this, and uh, we all were convicted about how we've misused our words, I pray that you would draw us near to the healer, to the heart healer. God, if there are people here that need help with this, I pray that you, they would, you'd help them to reach out to me, to uh, to reach out to someone, to, to get some help with their heart and stop waiting uh, for circumstances to make us feel better. God, I thank you that uh, for those who have been encouraging, may we be encouragers and healers with our words. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and let's finish our time together this morning.